I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In every good story, in any really, really good story, in any book or any film, the protagonist has to have a moment of losing their way. There are no clues left, or they've lost everything, or they're out in the road and somewhere where they don't know, they break down. And then they remember what they're all about. They remember their fundamental principles, and it's that that takes them back and at the end there's there's the homecoming you know they are back with their with their neighborhood their family their community welcomed in uh wiser uh more respected now because they've gone through all of this Thank you for listening to this edition of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. We've had a few episodes where we've focused on the events in Israel and Gaza, and we will be coming back to that subject in the coming days and weeks. But in this episode, we're covering something completely different. It's something we don't hear a lot about in the media, but it's arguably the most important question in British foreign policy. And that is what the circumstances and process might be for Britain to rejoin the EU. Nobody thinks that this is an easy issue or something that can be achieved quickly, but it's something that everyone with any sense of a European identity must see as a fundamental priority that Britain needs to get started with. And it's something that almost no mainstream national politician wants to talk about. So how would the long march back into the EU be achieved? What would be the steps the obstacles, the challenges. These are all questions that I want to examine in a series of episodes of Behind the Lines. For the first of these, who better to speak to than the leader of the European movement itself, Dr. Mike Goldsworthy. He's a scientist, campaigner and passionate European. We cover a lot of ground and we started with the impact of Brexit on science, Mike's professional calling, before moving on to discuss the future and how Britain might think about reversing Brexit and rejoining the EU. I hope you find it interesting and maybe even inspiring. Here's Mike. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Arthur. Um, We're talking often on this podcast about major geopolitical issues, and some people might say that whether or not the UK is a member of the European Union, whilst being incredibly important, isn't necessarily a geopolitical question. Um, but I think you don't see it that way, do you? No, I, I see it not just as a geopolitical question, but also a question about the future of humanity. Um, as a scientist by background, um, I believe in cooperation and collaboration. 
And in fact, this is where modern science is at the moment. Science is about a global team. Go into any lab in the UK or any other leading countries, and you see that it's a global team in terms of the people that make it up. And uh, the European model that was forged out of the ashes of World War II was about how you build a future based on peace and collaboration. And so in current geopolitics, you've got three current giants, um, which are the states, China and Europe, in terms of market size, in terms of science and innovation and setting regulations and um, large scientific structures and how you do your markets and how you do your democracies. Now, India is on the rise and the African countries look like they're trying to cluster up in a copy of the EU. But which of these entities is going to be dominant? Which of these entities is going to set the strongest pattern for how humanity develops? For me, um, I would like it to be Europe because I think it is the best model when you've got the plurality of nations working together, the checks and balances that they put on each other, the ability to keep big tech in check because you've got that kind of structure and a future of humanity based on deep collaboration on values and principles. So for me, the, the issue is very much not just about the UK, not just about Europe, but about Europe's place in the world and Europe's model in the world and what model we take forward for humanity uh, from this period. But let, let's rewind a little. Um, you're obviously now head of the European movement here in the UK, but your background is actually as a professional scientist. So could you tell our listeners most of whom will be familiar with you, but one or two may not. Uh, tell us a bit about your background and how uh, the, the the sort of the disaster of Brexit, if you like, turned you into a political campaigner. So I did my uh, undergraduate in, in natural sciences, specialising in psychology. And then I went on to do a PhD in behavioural genetics. So uh, the, the development and measurement of intelligence in, in humans and in animals. Um, but after I'd done my PhD, I started getting more in my studies into science policy and health policy. And I had one project that was actually about analysing the European science programme, particularly in health, and breaking down what it had invested in and what it had got out of those investments from all the different labs. So I was starting to get into the science of science or doing research on research and yeah. understanding science that way and commentating about it in, in that multinational framework. So when you're doing science policy, you can write academic papers on it, but you can also start writing for the lay audience on it and talk about the importance of science investment. And I started doing that. I started writing articles about science and thinking about the politics of science as well. And I came back to the UK in, in 2013 because I'd been in Switzerland and Slovenia and started writing more, more articles, public articles on it and started getting involved in political pressure on increasing funding for UK science as well. Yeah. And I came across Scientists for Labour. I wasn't particularly, I wasn't associated with any party at the time, but they looked like they had a thing going and I wanted to try and shoehorn my ideas into them. Um, yeah. And I ended up in 2015 um, writing the policy document for Scientists for Labour. But yeah. when... Ed Miliband didn't win. David Cameron has just come in on a mandate to hold a referendum on our membership of the EU. And I can tell you from studying the relationship between UK and EU science, just how useful that is. And the rest of scientists for Labour agreed that Brexit would be a very bad thing for UK science. So I said, let's set up another campaign. Let's spin it out of scientists for Labour. Let's call it scientists for the EU. And 
we know full well that trying to bend the ear of politicians is really frustrating because they say yes, yes, yes to sensible stuff, and then they don't increase the science funding, even though they know the value of it. I said, they will only respond to this if their constituents are squealing and they're seeing the media squealing about it. We need to start a social media campaign on Facebook and on Twitter. Let's call it Scientists for EU. We got thousands of people just over that weekend. I remember it was the Friday that um, Rob in the group said, okay, Mike, I'm with you. Uh, You better think of a logo because I've set up the Facebook page and I've started to invite friends. And Rob and I just went on it hard all that weekend. I was knackered by the end of it. But by the end of it, we had an audience on Facebook and on Twitter. We had some uh, articles covering us in the European science press. But then this had been discovered by The Times as well, um, one of the editors of The Times, that wanted me to then gather up some of the scientific sort of big names, turn in a, a letter to the editor of The Times, which we then uh, did Late that month, this was all in May, I think. And then, yeah, we we were off as a campaign. And that was me then transitioning from science into politics. And by the time we got to November, um, I had secured funding so that I could do this full time. And I've been doing campaigning full time ever since, actually. It's a r- remarkable how that event, which uh, I imagine that almost all of my listeners uh, will will see as a regretful one has sort of changed lives in so many diverse ways I'm, I'm interested to know um partly because you are a scientist you're you're used to looking at evidence and also perhaps your your study of human psychology what was your feeling how did you feel it was likely to pan out I mean and I, I'll be transparent I I thought remain would would scrape home I didn't think it would be a big big win but I thought we'd we'd, we'd be all right well with me it was touch and go because in the weeks leading up to the uh, actual vote or the couple of weeks leading up to it because remember all in all it was only a four-month campaign from February until the June it was it was that quick but I remember the the chair at the time of of European movement Laura Sands uh, she's actually the daughter of Duncan Sands the um, son-in-law of Winston Churchill um, and, and she was saying, we've lost it. You know, this this Independence Day thing, they're going hard on that, everyone I talked to. And I was in the same mind. But then on the evening itself, I went into the Britain Stronger in Europe watch room. I was, I was invited along. And as I came in, there was Will Straw, who was the director of the campaign. And he called me over and he goes like, Mike, Mike, we've just got some... We've just got some polls through and they're all for Remain. And uh, I think one was 54 to 46. That's the one I remember. And he showed me that. And he said, and we've had a couple of others like this. Cautiously optimistic, I think it might have been what he said. And uh, and I thought, OK, few, few. But I wasn't <laughs> sure if I trusted him. But that reassured me a bit. But then the evening panned out the way it did. Um, and I remember I actually had an interview um, at the time but I remember I went for that interview and then as I was coming out, I saw this right wing uh, DJ that had had me on the programme before. And he was like, ah, oh, Sunderland, did you see Sunderland? Oh, I'm going to have to have you on the programme tomorrow when you're licking your wounds and I can rub it in. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I went back from there uh, to the to the watch room and then I came in and the mood had completely changed. Like everyone was standing around looking glum. The, the big cheeses had sort of started swallowing off out of the room. And it was just the um, the staff operatives on the overabundance of alcohol that was left, knocking it back and, and looking miserable. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's a night we'd, we'd all love to forget, but sadly, probably most of us can't. Um, obviously, I want to talk about the future, but just before we go there, let's just talk about what Brexit meant for UK science. And, and, I suppose, you know, of course, there's been a very recent and positive development in terms of uh, a certain level of access to the Horizon programme. But prior to that, it would be interesting to, for you to sort of characterise what Brexit meant for UK science. And then perhaps you can explain what the most recent change is, uh, what, what, what they also mean. For sure. I'll give you a, a quick chronology. Um, so the real danger was that from the get go, um, because Brexit was so antithetical to um, the science 
uh, how it was done and the science community and the outlook of scientists that it would have an instant chilling effect. Um, and then there would be uncertainty as well as a reluctance of um, other people from the science community to come to the UK. So actually a week before the election, I wrote two mini business plans, one for what we would do from Scientists for EU if it was a victory for Remain and one for what we would do from Scientists for EU if it was a victory for Leave. My plan for if it was a victory for Leave would be to immediately uh, highlight uh, these issues, to start gathering data and information about what impact there had been immediately and get through to key politicians uh, about certain measures that could be put in quickly to reassure and safeguard. And what we found was that there was indeed an immediate um, set of effects. One, the dropping pound meant that people that had uh, budgeted to buy equipment from the continent suddenly found big black holes in, in their budgets. Also, there was a xenophobic um, factor, you know, a, a xenophobic backlash that uh, quite a few people either reported or said they worried about. And for those that worked in labs, it wasn't that they got any of that in the lab. It's usually when they went out of the town centre and people heard their accents and presumed that they would just like go back home or something like that, right? They, they, they found that they were received differently by some people who felt emboldened. Yeah. <clears throat> there was a lot of concern um, around the future of uh, participation on Horizon, um, what that would mean immediately. And so... There was lots of conversations with partners about the UK stepping down as lead on some of the projects or stepping off projects altogether. And there was a whole variety of dynamics, sometimes European partners saying, yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind, could you please step down because X, Y, Z. Another time European partner says, no, don't you leave. We need you. We love you. It'll be OK. It's fine. All that kind of emotional stuff around yeah. the projects. Um Lots of contracts got frozen or ended because of the uncertainty. Um, there were people who were mid-joining teams in the UK that then decided to cancel it on the spot because of Brexit, either the uncertainty or just philosophical objection and wanting to make a point. There was lots of there were lots of scientists who said, um, I'm going to leave now, and I discounted all of those because I, I was looking for, for real explicit impact that had happened. Immediately from the get-go there, there was uh, confusion, chaos, disappointment, and a chilling effect on the coolness of UK science. And that, that's almost a, a quote that appeared on the BBC, where someone in the lab actually said, we went from cool to very uncool overnight. And then the way that it played out until from 2016 until 2020 was that this uncertainty was always there. You had Theresa May saying, oh, no, we're going to stay on the programme, we'll invest in it, this is a priority. But at the same time, you had her Brexit ministers and, and her herself. Uh, so you had Dominic Raab and you had David Davis and Theresa May saying, no deal is, is better than a bad deal. Um, we reserve the right to pull the plug suddenly. The implications of that for the science programme would be immediately, contractually, you are no longer allowed to be on certain projects or receive funds from the EU. Like contractually, it would shelf things. Even if you fill in money from, from the UK in, it just actually shafts a lot of things. So what you actually saw from 2016 to 2020 is a slow drop of UK participation on the Horizon programme. Even though we were fully paid up members, nevertheless, that chilling effect meant that we dropped from joint pole position with Germany, which we held for many years, dropped down to then below Germany, then in the next year, below Germany and France, next year, below Germany, France and Spain, next year, below Germany, France, Spain and Italy. And in 2020, we were in fifth place, uh, just above the Netherlands. All of that was, was um, the pit to our participation on the science programme. And don't forget the, the scientists as well that were thinking about coming to the UK, very hard to measure, but anecdotally, lots of cases of yeah, we hired someone from, from the EU, 
but our choice was like five people rather than the usual 20 or 25, right? Yeah. Um, and furthermore, all the all the problems with uh, visas um, meant that, that was a chilling effect as well. And on universities too, you saw a drop um, in, in university takes for um, new undergraduates coming on of about uh, a drop of 40% <clears throat> immediately after Brexit. So it was a big hit to our higher education sector. Then, of course, there was the loss of Erasmus. There was lots of other structures related to this, such as Galileo, um, which is our own, which is the EU's GPS system. And then finally, when we did organize the New Deal and agreed that Horizon Europe would be on it, because we then indicated, or our government then indicated immediately to the EU that, yeah, we've just signed the withdrawal, agree uh, withdrawal agreement and the TCA. However, we don't like part of the withdrawal agreement, the Northern Ireland Protocol. What we're going to do is we're going to write our own national laws that basically undermine it. By the way, can we finish off signing this other contract on science? Of course, the commission had to say no because they looked like complete fools if they were to sign a new contract, while the current contract, which was foundational to the TCA, was being renamed. So partly it was a political football, but um, they were saying no. But at the same time, what else did you reasonably expect? So then we were hanging from 2020 until 2023, which is when Rishi Sunak came in, and sorted out the Windsor framework, which meant that all of the threats about pulling the plug on at all were solved and the door was open to re-signing Horizon. So all of this time from 2020 to 2023, the UK science community had been sitting on the bench for Horizon, not allowed to participate fully, oftentimes writing grants which were then granted by the EU, but then the timing got to the point whereby the EU had to say, look, either you pick up this project in an EU country or an associated country, or you drop it and your own government's going to fund it. And most would drop it and have the UK government fund it, but some said, no, you know, I'll, I'll go and do it in Zurich as well. Instead, why not? You know, I'll go and do it in Berlin or what have you. So, and each of those projects was a multi-million one. Finally, through through that drought where we dropped behind other countries and dropped behind Belgium, really starved out. Finally, the Windsor framework was signed. And then what did Rishi Sunak do? He gave it another half a year before he negotiated back into Horizon. Meantime, he, he was trying to promote an alternative British-only version to this massive multinational framework called Pioneer, and it was being accepted nowhere. But the problem with that is, is that it wasn't just a lost half year, it was the chilling effect of that as well. Yeah. Suddenly the door was open to signing the science contract, science community was dead excited, everyone was ready to go again, and then suddenly... The government's not sure if the government approves of this. The government has other ideas. David Frost rather likes the government's new ideas. And the science community just had their head in their hands. It's like, this government doesn't get what we need. We've been explaining this for years. The opportunity is here. Seize it now. That's the chronological um, sequence. Yeah. Now, And of course, for many people uh, who you know woke up on the morning after the referendum and you saw that if you, you're, you're a Remainer, you, you know that your side has lost, but you see it's a narrow vote. You see that there was no clear pathway for what exactly Brexit was going to be. You know, there were, there were, people weren't voting on a version of Brexit. It was just, you know, the concept. Um, yeah. And so the thought that we could leave the EU but remain members of Horizon, remain members of Galileo, Euratom, aviation, all that kind of stuff. In those early days, it was still a possibility, wasn't it, that Brexit didn't have to be the kind of David Frost, Boris Johnson vision, which is effectively, we, we, we pretend that Europe doesn't exist. Well, 
I mean, with Euratom, <laughs> that was a weird one, but it but it popped out of the fact that it's overseen by the ECJ and it's like, ooh, ECJ can't can't go anywhere near having a shared court. Um, but it wasn't clear to many people uh, during the referendum what the deal was meant to be with the single market and customs union. Now, for hardcore Brexiteers, they will swear blind to this day that it was dead clear that it was leaving the single market and customs union and the lot lock stock. But of course, um, there's the famous Hanan video where he rather gives the game away, doesn't he? You know, long before the uh, vote. Yeah, but that was, uh, uh, and Andrew Neil um, pointed out um, later after the referendum, oh, that was before the campaigning period. Yeah, but it was still influential on many pe people. And as you got into the campaigning period, the Remain side, uh, Britain's stronger in Europe, I know, because I worked alongside them, they were waiting for when the Leave side was going to put down their manifesto and say what model it was going to be. That's why you saw, well, is it going to be Turkish style or Albanian style or Swiss style or Canadian style? And then after the Leave campaign was sort of bouncing between all of those, because obviously all of those were inadequate on some form or another, yeah. they came up with the magic formula, which was, well, it's going to be bespoke to us, obviously, obviously. You see all these different models, that just goes to show that we'll have our own model, which of course will be better than all the other models because we're British and we will negotiate a better model than anyone else could possibly negotiate. Uh, so it lost itself in rhetoric. Um, and there was actually polling just after the referendum showing that even amongst leavers, I, I believe, a majority thought that the solution that would happen would be staying in the single market, but with significant changes to how we do free movement or our own free movement deal or something like that. They thought we could leverage that. Um, and essentially, when the vote went for leave, I thought, right, okay, they've won it. I am also unhappy as other people, but it is now my duty to the science community to write um, about and, and influence about how we can rebuild UK-EU science outside of UK membership of the EU. And so I, I wrote on that. I, I said, you know, these are the things that we need to guarantee. Free movement, Let's try and find a way to get that because that would be so helpful. Certainly stay on the science programme, but then also look at the patent system, the shared patent system, European Medicines Agency, um, the um, uh, reach laws about chemical. So it's all about alignment, all about transfer of people, data adequacy, patent uh, rules and that kind of stuff. Uh, all of this kind of stuff, though, largely got ignored including single market solutions and customs union solutions um, pretty early on because the Leave campaign may have won by an inch, but they decided to take it a mile and then another mile and just go the whole hog uh, and press that upon Theresa May. So the Lancaster House speech early on in her uh, prime ministership was the one where she really killed off all notions of a compromise Brexit, a softer Brexit, a halfway house Brexit. I mean, I was starting to advocate at the time that what you should consider is a third pillar in the single market model. So the EU was officially a pillar of the single market with EFTA being another pillar. Uh, so there was an opportunity to have a third pillar, which could be based on the UK, you could borrow for a while the EFTA courts, which were already a well-established mechanism between those countries and in the single market. So thereby, you can be doing your own trade deals, but you've still got a pillar in the single market. Um, and you can test out how that goes. And if the population likes it, you can stay. If the population doesn't like it and they want to go back to the EU, you can. It's a halfway house. If the population says, yeah, we're comfortable with this, but we really want to get out of the single market now, you can then make another step. And it's and it's manageable and it's sensible. 
And I remember that we actually had um, a meeting and Gina Miller was there and some others where we were talking about exactly this solution. And we had even had word from, I think it was Norwegian representatives that they would be willing to actually let the UK borrow after courts if they were approached on such a thing. Um, but that just got killed off by Theresa May's Lancaster House speech, which was, you know, Brexit means Brexit. Well, what does Brexit mean? And apparently just leaving everything to do with free movement or the European Court of Justice. Yeah, that way you've just gone, I think, is is perfectly set us up for kind of the rest of this discussion, because we, we really want to talk about the future. You're now leading the European movement. It's a movement of people most of whom would like us to fully rejoin the EU and certainly would like us to be massively more engaged with the EU. And we all know that there are endless opinion polls now pointing to the fact that very large majorities in Britain know that Brexit has failed and a lot of British people would be happy for us to rejoin. But there, there is no political consensus on it. Everybody knows you know, the Labour Party doesn't want to go there. Even the Lib Dems arguably are more pro-European party, are not prepared to to sort of push for it in a, in a very sort of front footed way. Um, so where does this long march begin? Because there are millions of people in this country and you are in some respects kind of their, their, their leader. Uh, millions of people in this country that want us eventually, maybe it's something that they can dream of for their children, but they want that, that European side of being British to return. But we all know that it can't happen overnight. And, and we don't really know the structures. So does this begin with something like that? Something where we begin by exploring versions of the the Norwegian model, the Swiss model, or, or do we have to do something altogether different? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, so first up, um, if you are one of those many millions that do want to join and you haven't yet joined European movement, you should. Um, I agree. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. Excellent. So people excellent. Can get that. And I should say that <clears throat> it's not European movement. UK may be the biggest entity, um, but it's a real ecosystem of entities that you've got here. Uh, we also have Wales for Europe, European movement in Scotland, young European movement, which are all sort of really bound up with European movement. But you've got completely independently uh, Stay European, the National Rejoin March, um, obviously the New European. This is that, the newspaper. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and there are many, many other entities um, as well. Um, but out of those that are stridently pro-Rejoin, then um, probably it's the National Rejoin March and, our, and ourselves, and but, but we're obviously the larger entity and we work closely. Um, and it is a case of building up, and even, even though the political parties aren't advocating it yet, outside of SNP and, and Biden Greens, um, I'm really not bothered by that. And in fact, it's rather a good thing, uh, not just from my perspective, as, as you say, the leader of the rejoin sort of movement at the moment, but this thing it it, it doesn't do well by being led by politicians right now. Right. Um, if Keir Starmer were to try and lead a rejoin thing now, it wouldn't work. Not just because of his character and um, it's 
he's more of a kind of like sensible manager type rather than you know fiery passionate vision guy but people are getting sick of politicians at the moment politicians are being confused on this um and so this really has to be has to start with a call from the public and pressure from the public and from lots of parts of the public and the public demanding this of the politicians and you need to see that from all the all the different demographics of the UK all the different ages particularly the youth uh, all the different cultural demographics all the different classes regions and that's what we're trying to shape up here uh, with European movement um, and that is all <clears throat> coming forward and um, I think it's really important because we may have left the EU on a 52 to 48 or 51.9 to yeah, 40, 48 sort of breakdown. Um, but if we're going to go back in, it, it can't be split down the middle. You know, it is going to have to be 65%. It's going to have to be a two thirds or, or greater thing, realistically. Yeah. One for Europeans to accept us back into the fold like that. But secondly, so that we ourselves know that we're not playing the hokey cokey here. Um, and I think we're going to get there. Um, and I think we're going to learn a lot on the way. But but to get there, we do need all the major parts of society to see something in it for themselves that is long term and that is stable. Um, and so that community build that we all engage in is really important. And so to for that reason, the way that we get back in has to be step by step. Yeah. We can't we can't have nothing happen for years and then take a leap at it. That's not good enough. Neither can we um try and have a go at it now and neither can we sort of uh do it bit by bit and stay bit by bitty uh what it needs to look more like is is more like a triple jump <laughs> or a high jump you know you start with the baby steps um you then get into your strides and then you go for it and the baby steps are things like accepting the ce mark and you dropping the uk um CA mark, which was a failure, getting back into Horizon, having a youth mobility scheme. Erasmus Plus is a very obvious target. The Labour Party is talking about alignment. Good, very sensible. All of these things which start to say, we've crossed the stream from being in the EU to being on Brexit side. Brexit side is, is rubbish. Divergence from the EU is rubbish. Putting up barriers with our biggest trading partner is rubbish and cutting off the rights of our own citizens to go and roam like British lions on the continent also feels a bit rubbish that we can't do that anymore. Um, so why don't we think about how we build back step by step to the better bank now that we've seen both? Um, and that's what we're going to have to do. But we don't want to get caught midstream. Obviously, the big steps are free movement single market, customs union, and EU outright. Yeah. Um, and we basically have to set a course in that direction that's win by win by win. Horizon is a win, and now it's on our scientists to show that that's successful. Erasmus Plus is another one. Alignment is another one. We'll get benefits from all of these. So grab them, show that the public support them, put them in place, show it's a win. Pick up another thing, show that the public supports it, put it in place, get another win. That's that's what sets the direction. That's the important thing here. So I guess um, someone who was was listening to that and and um, perhaps, you know, I might here be playing devil's advocate. Uh, one could say, yep, science, you've got to be a bit weird to disagree with scientists working together. I mean, there are some weird people in our society who seem to prefer us, would wish we could work with other scientists. But, you know, the in general, yeah. most sensible people will hear that. They'll think students exchanging that, that again, that's just a that's a sort of common good. But yeah. free movement is is the really tricky one, isn't it? And And it feels as if that that, you know, for a lot of people, 
the vote for Brexit was a vote about not controlling our borders. And again, you know, I, it's hard to talk about this without using terminology that that politicians have have exploited and they've used it to exploit division. But um, even though we currently have lots of immigration from outside the EU, and, and of course, the government doesn't want you to know too much about that, uh, it does feel as if getting people comfortable with the idea of free movement, of, of unrestricted, uh, sort of un, unmediated movement across the European continent of which we are part, including possibly Ukraine, which is a very large country, big population, uh, that might be quite challenging. So how do you think? Well, I guess I have two questions. One is, how can we we manage that? But also, is there is there ever the possibility of any kind of discussion around this? Because periodically, people like Tony Blair will pop up and say, oh, there's a deal to be done on free movement. It doesn't have to be as simple as that. What, what, what's your view on that? Well, whenever you talk about anything on immigration and you poll it, framing as everything, it can absolutely flip polls. What people want in immigration is usually based on fairness, um, the ability for them to preserve their own communities, the ability to support things that they care about, like the NHS, and then their own rights. I actually commissioned a poll about a year ago um, on mutual free movement. Would you like the idea of mutual free movement where EU citizens get to travel here for a while and then could work or stay here in exchange for UK citizens being able to work and travel over there. Yeah. 85% uh, of people say yes, including a uh, preponderance of Leave voters. More Leave voters agree with that than disagree with that. Fascinating. Now, that is, of course, exactly what we had but the portrayal of what free movement was, was that other EU citizens had free movement into this country. They could come in here and act like the country was their own, pick up benefits, uh, hang around. Um, and that was unfair on immigrants that came from outside Europe. And that was unfair on us in terms of competition completely, completely different from what free movement actually is. <clears throat> so free movement has got nothing to do with controlling our borders. We have passport control on our borders and largely control our borders rather well, apart from since the small boat crisis sort of picked up, in which case we've got more open borders. But free movement is about rights to travel and work. And yeah. it's not unlimited rights to travel and work. It's actually pretty strict um, in that under the free movement agreement, citizens have three months in which they can have visa fee free travel, after which they can only stay officially if they have a job or if they can prove they've got means to support themselves. Right. We've never enforced that. In Belgium, they enforce that. Anyone who's worked in the European Parliament will tell you they enforce that. I know uh, someone who, who went to live over there and her boyfriend had to go with her down to the local authorities and uh, open up all of his sort of bank accounts and prove to them that he could afford to keep her. Without that, she wasn't allowed to stay. I went and I worked in Switzerland, which also is outside the EU, but subscribes to free movement. I had to go to the offices of my local canton as soon as I lined up a job in Switzerland. And even then I was too slow in doing it because I didn't do it within the week. According to the records, I've been in the country slightly longer. So I got fined. And there are other people who work in the commission. You know, you want to bring your, your family over. Can you prove that you can keep them? So all you could have done um, or David Cameron could have done at the time, was to say, right, what we're going to do from now on in is any EU citizen, fellow EU citizen coming over the border, they get a piece of paper which says, welcome to the UK. You can stay here for three months. If you want to stay longer, then before the three months is up, you have to 
phone this office or email this office and say, A, that you've got a job, or B, you want to come in for interview to prove that you've got enough money to stay here. Otherwise, you will have broken the law here and you will not be allowed to stay. And that means that you won't be allowed to get accommodation or what have you, whatever, right? David Cameron never did it. Uh, I think partly because he thought that he was just going to win anyway. So didn't want to go through the faff and didn't want, you know, this could be related to ID cards or whatever. Um, but essentially, there is an opportunity to go back to free movement if you talk about it in terms of would you like to be able to roam across the continent again and have all these rights in exchange for people being able to come over to work in our NHS and prop it up like they used to? Would you like uh, restrictions such as you can't settle here after three months unless you've already made your money or you're proving that you're making money? Furthermore, I mean, previously, there was just wild misinformation also put out by the government about the proportion of child benefits that went back to other EU countries. Right. It showed that, that people thought about 15% of our child benefits or something like that went off to Poland and that kind of stuff. But of course, it was it was less than a percent. It was trivial. It was nothing. Yeah. Um, so there is this, there's this issue of, of enforcement, certainly. And, and I, at this point about mutual free moon is very interesting. And maybe, you know, an achievement of, of the European movement could be to change the vocabulary that it becomes something that we yeah. call mutual free movement and people would get it and say, yeah, well, I mean, that, that has an inherent fairness to it. I yes. suppose the other area to, to, to talk about is actually the EU countries themselves. And I think... Um, there are obviously some countries that would like us back pretty much straight away uh, and regret us ever leaving. I, I, I recall just after the vote, I was doing a certain amount of work in Sweden and some, some of the people I was working with were, were civil. question of dismay because there was this kind of sense of the Nordic countries having joined the EU, partly because they saw it as a way of working more closely with Britain on sort of common interest areas, including security, managing from Russia and so on. But, um, you know, we've come a long way from there. Uh, certainly, the back in the day, the, the UK was a, was a net contributor to the EU. But of course, leaving the EU means that our economy is growing much less quickly. Uh, you have countries like Poland that are getting much wealthier. So is, is there a risk that, that even if we manage to generate goodwill, which of course, we squandered all that under Johnson, we might be able to rebuild it. Is there a risk that the EU says, look, you know, you, you guys are pretty problematic and actually you're you're no longer a very good bet you're no, no longer a very good sort of um you're not a good investment anymore yeah i mean the eu will look at the uk as a risk on a couple of fronts one the commitment to membership should we rejoin and so that's why they're looking at whether you know it's hit the 65% mark uh, they will also look at the Conservative Party and think, is there a chance that a pro-Brexit Conservative Party could get back in? If there is, then we're looking at maybe a second Brexit and just a real headache. Um, two things would kill that off. One would be if the Conservative Party gave up on Brexit because they realised that it is not going to excite any youth whatsoever for the rest of existence. Um, the second would be that uh, if PR came in, then there would be no chance that a, a government could be formed that was led by or included uh, a pro-Brexit Conservative Party. Uh, just look at what happened in, in Poland. You can have a right-wing party under PR win the most votes, but if they can't put together a government because all other parties think that they can't work with them, then you're not going to be able to form a government unless you can get over 50% and that's just it. Yeah. So those are the main um, caveats that the European countries look at the UK with. There is also, you know, the ongoing nervousness of what if the UK acts like they did before, which is pouring cold water over lots of different collaborative initiatives, calling Basically, it integration. Yeah, being the spoiler in all kinds of yes, all kinds yes, of projects. Exactly. Yeah. 
So the tone coming out of the UK government and also, uh, you know, the, the polling and the population on various different measures would indicate whether the, the UK was approaching the whole thing differently. Um, I've, I've heard it said uh, by someone I trust that um, if you look at the populations of the EU countries, they'd be very keen for the UK to come back. If you look at the politicians that dealt with the UK recently, particularly those in Brussels, that's where you're going to have the problem because they've been badly burned and rubbed up the wrong way by how the UK government behaved in, in recent years. So we are going to have to, if we want to get back, make sure that we do a lot of political work across Europe to rebuild relationships, make sure that there's good understanding of how we could dock back in uh, and make sure that we show our value. So in terms of, you know, cultural value, wanting the exchanges, wanting the collaboration. So part of the thing that we're doing at, at European Movement UK is that we're part of the European Movement family. There is a European Movement International, European Movement Germany, European Movement Ireland, right? We've been talking to all of those. So, so exchanges of um, culture and information and building relations there is not just good for our future progress, but also for us just building the kind of community that we want to live in for our membership. It, it sets up lots of opportunities for, for good webinars and talks and exchanges and um, lots of flagging up of opportunities. So all, all of that build is going to be important. I'm interested to know what uh, what individuals can do. I mean, obviously, they can join the European movement and, and they can be active. Uh, but I, I'm also interested in your sense of timeframes, because I think a lot of people who went through the Brexit experience and, and possibly were also heavily involved in campaigning for a second referendum and those sorts of things were frankly kind of exhausted by that and and very dispirited. And, and if that was your first sort of experience of campaigning politics, obviously not not particularly happy one. Uh, so how what 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 do you think is a is a time frame and a trajectory that people can believe in? Which of course I, I know no one is here giving guarantees, but what what when you try and think about this, how do you sort of envision it as a as a time period? Right. About 10 years is what most people are thinking. And I understand that a lot of people feel quite knackered from the whole thing. Um, but if you're feeling at all dispirited, think about how Brexiteers feel, right? Where are their groups now? Where are their champions now? Their biggest champion, Nigel Farage, said back in May, Brexit's been a failure. It has failed. Um, and most of their supporters think it's failed. They're only holding on to the candle that it might get better over time. But in terms of their organisation, in terms of structures and passion, it's not there, but ours is on the up, uh, which is the interesting thing. You can see that in the polling at the moment that it used to be the case that, that you know, the polling questions were, if you had the vote again, would you vote remain or would you vote leave? And remain was ahead of leave since, you know, 2017 and it was starting to open up and open up. Um, and then... There was the questions of, do you think Brexit was the right or wrong decision? That was opening up. But then the polls has actually flipped it to the forward, the, the future-focused question of, would you vote to rejoin or would you vote to stay out? And now you're seeing polling of, take away the don't knows, 63% for rejoin and 37% for stay out. Now, that's changed really quite quickly. But also along with the polling, there's also the political direction that's happening as well, which people forget. Back at the beginning of just this year, 2023, before the Windsor framework came along, you had Boris Johnson's internal markets bill, which was poised to rip up any chance for anything like a Windsor framework for UK national law to undermine international commitments. There could have been a trade war, all of that, was on the table. Also on the table was the retained EU law bill. Yeah, by the end of the year, all these laws, thousands of them, they're just going to be ripped up and trashed. And that salts the earth for any future parliament trying to build back with the EU. What happened to that? 
it absolutely got deflated down to a minnow and squeaked through as that. But there's every opportunity now for alignment. Then there was the rollback on the CE mark. Looks like it wasn't an idea to, to reinvent new wheels. You can see that happening elsewhere. And the Labour Party are talking about lots of alignment elsewhere. And then there was getting back into Horizon. And as soon as that happened, you saw Boris Johnson write in the Daily Mail, uh, we will never repeat, never go back into the EU, which was a lovely combination in my mind of don't think about a blue elephant and the lady doth protest too much. It was both of those together. You know, yeah. The first thing that he said on that was full awareness that lots of uh, rejoiners were seeing it as an opportunity of, of the stepping stones to come back in. There was excitement around it and the press was discussing it. He was saying, no, no, don't think about that. That will never happen. But we know that that's the direction that things are going. European movement this year has, has grown tremendously from, I don't know, about 16,000 to uh, 21,300, I think we're on now. Um, also, our staff has expanded a lot. You had last year the first National Rejoin March, which we then had again this year. That's going to be a national feature year after year. Um, <clears throat> and you can just see in the media conversation as well, the build for it. So even if the political parties aren't fully acknowledging it yet, you know that it feels like a pressure cooker on this issue. And you know this issue is not going away. So coming back to, you know, what can people do to get on board with it? And um, if you're feeling deflated, you are a couple of years out of date here because we're on the up at the moment. And right. We're having fun and we're growing. And now would be a great time for you to get on board because to bring it right back to the beginning of the conversation here, it's not just about our country where this is an exciting thing that could happen within the next decade. This is also about our continent. Imagine if we were to join the EU again at the same time that Ukraine is joining the EU and other countries. The EU didn't fall apart. It's going from strength to strength, actually. And then imagine what that means for the balance of global dynamics, that Europe again is strong. God knows what's going to happen in the States. On the social level, you know, They've got some massive problems going on. And China is intimidating in the global balance of market forces. The best thing that we can do is to come in from the cold with all of this learning we have of the EU, sort of take our marriage vows again, but this time sort of it's been piece by piece with full democratic support and full knowledge. Tell the BBC... We want you to cover European issues better than you ever did before and get those lines of power lined up with our, with the European Parliament and our own, be a whole load more involved and really get back onto the um, main uh, seat of everything that we can do across the continent um, with, with UK citizens involved all the way through it. So... There's all of this coming up to play for, all these wins in these stepping stones and then getting back in. And then when you're in, what you can do from that position and, and what this means for, for not just British future, but European future and the world's future. And there's a lot of fun to be had in it. And, and, and burying the Brexiteers and all their false promises is just a side bonus. But we will we will certainly take that one up. Fantastic. Well, I have to say, I mean, that's quite inspiring to hear. And, and I do think this linking it to Ukraine is, is so powerful because ultimately in Ukraine, people are fighting and dying for many things. But one of those things is for the right to join the EU. Um, and that's yeah. a reminder of, you know, what it means to I some. Think countries. back to 2014 and their maiden protests, which was with the European flag constantly, constantly. Yeah, they know the value of it. And I think the British public are starting to see the value of it. And think about it this way. In every good story, in any really, really good story, in any book or any film, the protagonist has to have a moment of losing their way. There are no clues left or they've lost everything or they're out in the road and somewhere where they don't know and they break down. And then they remember 
what they're all about. They remember their fundamental principles. And it's that that takes them back. And at the end, there's there's the homecoming. You know, they are back with their with their neighborhood, their family, their community welcomed in, uh, wiser, uh, more respected now because they've gone through all of this and they've rediscovered themselves. That's what I want our British story to be with regard to Europe. Mike Goldsworthy, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you very much, Arthur. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you want to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, why not subscribe? It won't cost you anything. And spread the word if you find these podcasts useful. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the music is by Matty Benwick. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.